NATO defence ministers have met in Brussels as a new phase begins in Afghanistan. The intention is that in a year's time when they commission out of uh, the academy, they will be becoming platoon commanders, leading their soldiers on operations in Afghanistan. The so-called Sandhurst in the Sand is now open for business. Today on SITRIP, we'll look in detail at what makes British military training so special. NATO has confirmed that the alliance could take part in decommissioning chemical weapons in Syria. The Secretary-General Agnes Faurasmussen was speaking at a meeting of defence ministers in Brussels. The mission in Afghanistan was also discussed. BFBS reporter Rosie Layden spoke to the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond and asked him about the issues that still need resolving before NATO decides what role it will play in the country after 2014. Well, clearly the strategic partnership agreement between the U.S. uh, and the Afghans is the first step. Uh, Once we have that in place, we expect to be able to move swiftly to a NATO status of forces agreement. And then the various NATO partner countries will be able to define their contribution uh, to the post-2014 situation in Afghanistan. Um, What does today's opening of the Afghan Army Training Academy, a Sandhurst in the Sand, what does that represent and will there be ongoing links with the UK? Uh, Absolutely there will be ongoing links. This is a very important uh, milestone. Remember this is a project that the Afghan president personally asked uh, the Prime Minister that the UK should deliver. Uh, It is based on uh, probably the world's most proven officer training uh, model, the Sandhurst model. Um, It will ensure that the Afghan army has a well-trained, competent and properly focused officer corps uh, in the future to make sure that it can sustain its fighting capability. And of course, um, having opened the academy this week, uh, we will go on providing a substantial proportion of the academy's uh, trainers uh, into the future uh, and, and eventually creating the Afghan trainer that will take over uh, and run this academy in the long term. This morning, the Secretary-General said that he would expect all member states to respond positively if there was a UN request for assistance with the decommissioning of chemical weapons in Syria. Is that something that Britain could help with? Uh, Well, we'll certainly look at any request to support the uh, um, OPCW in their Uh, the work that they now have to do. It's very important that we get the chemical weapons uh, under control out of Syria and then safely uh, decommissioned. Um, uh, We have some uh, specialist skill sets that could be um, made available to assist in this operation. It's too early to say yet how uh, we might best help, but we stand ready to do Uh, whatever it is appropriate for us to do as part of an international effort uh, to rid Syria of the scourge of chemical weapons. Um, Finally, if I could ask you more generally about NATO's role. Um, In a speech last week in Croatia, the Secretary-General emphasised that, in his opinion, member states aren't doing enough to explain to their people what NATO is for. Um, That's that's your job. Um, Is it simply it's too complicated to do, or is there a lack of interest? No, I don't think it's too complicated. I don't think there's a lack of interest, and The Secretary of General may be right um, looking across the whole of the 28 um, member nations, but I think in Britain, NATO is well understood as the bedrock 
of our national security. It is the cornerstone of, of our system of military uh, defence and our protection of our own national uh, interests. And we are uh, we guard very jealously anything that would erode or undermine. NATO's effectiveness, because the reality is uh, that over the last uh, 65, nearly 70 years, um, NATO has delivered uh, security, it has delivered peace in Europe, and vitally, it maintains that link between the European nations and the United States, which is so important to our overall protection. That was the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond talking to Rosie Layden in Brussels. Well, I'm joined, as usual, by Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Mm. Everyone there clear in the UK, he says, that at least what NATO is for. I was quite surprised that he said that, actually. I sometimes wonder what sort of tree these people live up, you know. Um, if you go to the opinion polls over the past... Since the 4th of April 1949, when NATO was formed, you will find that the question of NATO has never appeared in an election campaign. Never. If you go onto the streets of the United Kingdom, including Scotland, which is thinking, re having to rethink its own defence, NATO is never mentioned. Do you think it should be? Uh, absolutely. And this is one of the huge problems facing NATO. It's all right for the defence minister to say, oh, yes, it's perfectly understood in the United Kingdom. I mean, there are nine people in, 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 in perhaps outside of Whitehall that could tell you what NATO stands for. Mm. Um, they don't know where it is. Uh, they don't know what I suppose, it was. I mean, to, to, to defend him a bit, he had to say that, really, no, didn't he? don't defend him a bit, because well, the point is... I think he did have to say no, that, though, no, otherwise... No, he would... didn't have to say that. He could have, i tell you what he could have said. He could have said, listen, uh, two weeks ago, the Secretary-General of NATO was in Croatia. Croatia's just joined the EU. The connection between EU and NATO, which he was trying to talk about, is so, therefore, much stronger. Now, what he could have said was this. The Secretary-General said... People in the in Western Europe, in particular, have got to understand well, that's, more. That's the point that Rosie put to him. Yeah, got to understand more exactly what defence is for, not just NATO, but defence is for, and they do not because governments are not explaining. And that sort of answer won't get more people on the street saying, "Oh gosh, that's what it's all about," is it? No way. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, what makes the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst the envy of the world? And we hear how African Union troops in Somalia have benefited from British military training. As we heard the Defence Secretary mention earlier, the first course at the Afghan National Army Officer Academy has begun. For the last year, British and ISAF mentors have been preparing for this course and training up Afghan military instructors to lead the training. BFBS reporter Ali Gibson was there for the official opening. On, on the parade square, cadets on the first ever course at the Afghan National Army Officer Academy practiced their drill. Arms and legs in perfect unison, ready to be whipped into shape as the new commanders of the ANA's future. It's day three of the 42-week course and the start of their transformation, with heads freshly shaved and baggy clothing swapped for fresh uniform. Cadet Naweed Habibi. This is the first academy that is equal to the Sandhurst Academy, and here we can learn things. We can learn how to defend our country, we can defend our people, and we can defend the border of Afghanistan. 
They are a group the world is watching. The first intake of cadets after David Cameron and Hamid Karzai's agreements last year to build an Afghan officer academy based on British models. Brigadier General Sharif Sharifi is the commandant here, himself a product of British officer training at Sandhurst. I am so happy to see domestic and international media here to broadcast our activity to the international community and to the people of Afghanistan. It is a proud day for me today. It really is a good day. From almost 10,000 applicants, the 270 who were successful form the first Kandak or battalion here and are trained by Afghan senior non-commissioned officers or NCOs, with British mentors observing and offering gentle advice. It's an encouraging step for the deputy commander of ISAF, Lieutenant General John Lorimer. Well, I think this whole academy is has got so much potential, so much potential. For the, for the young officer cadets who've just started. I mean, this is the start of their military career. And uh, the intention is that in a year's time, when they commission out of uh, the academy, they will be becoming platoon commanders, leading their soldiers on operations in Afghanistan. And they will provide the bedrock, the bedrock of the, of the future Afghan National Army. Here, the key values of British military training like leadership and educational study are adapted for Afghan means. Huge barriers have also been broken down with the cadets being chosen on their abilities rather than their status. Lieutenant Colonel Graham Highland is a senior mentor. What's really good about the system that we have is that it's completely anonymous. Um, so when the cadets arrive here, and the candidates arrive here, sorry, um, they get given a pair of overalls, they get given a, a, a coloured bib, and they are known as Red 34, or whatever number it happens to be, throughout the two days that they're here. What we've avoided by doing that is any form of patronage, which has existed in the past, uh, and therefore, with the 938 candidates that have gone through the process, we've been able to select the top 270, and it's not based on being the son of a minister, son of a general, or whatever, we've got the best folk for our academy. But it's not just the men who will get a look in at Kaga. Next May, there will also be hope for the women in Afghanistan's future, as a female tole or company begin their officer training here too. Although British combat operations in Afghanistan ends next year, the British commitment here will continue for long past that, helping the Afghans as they take the lead in deciding their own future. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Kabul. Christopher, why are they following the British British officer training model and not the American or the French one? Um, the whole region, or that subcontinent, has done for 100 years or so. Up until 1947, it was all one, if you think about it. And the you get at Sandhurst, and you also get at Dartmouth still, uh, especially still, I suppose, um, Indian officers, officer cadets going there to do staff courses or whatever. And so there's this huge colonial, if you wish, colonial connection of doing it. You look at the uniforms. Uh, look at the... And this is part of the whole Commonwealth thing, you know, 53 nations, sending their young people to the UK for, the, for, for this sort of, sort of training. And the most important thing that we have to think about, because we're withdrawing most of it, unless you get young platoon commanders 
NCOs as platoon commanders, unless you've got good company commanders in training, which I haven't got at the moment, unless you train them to do be, be platoon commanders and company commanders, sort of senior NCOs, captain sort of rank, there is absolutely nil chance, nil chance of the uh, security stability that you need for the future of Afghanistan. So this is not just to be joked about in that sense. It is, it is the future of Afghanistan, how it might be secured. So what makes the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst so special? Why is it the most proven model for training those that lead armies and even countries all over the world? We're joined now from Sandhurst by Colonel Roy Parkinson. Hello, Colonel. Good to speak to you today. Hello. What, what percentage of officer cadets come to Sandhurst from foreign countries? Out of the total input into Sandhurst, about 11% are from overseas. And what countries do they come from? Um, it will take me all day to tell you. <laughs> over, over how, how many then? Sorry, over 110 countries have yes. sent cadets here since 1947. Mm. At any one time, we have, for example, at the moment, we have 64 overseas cadets from 30 countries. And that must be a lot of different cultures to have to deal with. How do you do that? They have to deal with it. The poor cadets are the ones that have to deal with it. You know, some of them are from countries that have been sending cadets here for, since 1947, countries such as Malaysia, Pakistan. Some are new, such as Armenia. But before they come here, we, you know, we've got to make sure that at least they can speak English and they're fit. And then, in the year they're here, they have to contend with their different culture, different religion, different uh, climate and different food. But by and large, most of them do very well. And what kind of stories do you have from them about why they've come? Their countries, I believe, think Sandhurst is the or one of the best military academies in the world. And we are, we are different from the other academies, such as West Point in the USA or in France, they are universities that train people for three or four years. And during that university course, they do military training. Sandhurst is a year's course, and we do military training with a bit of academic stuff um, included in the, in the program. But we are very much a military training academy. And, you know, you come here maybe as a military virgin, but when you leave, you're a trained officer. And what do you think makes that officer training at Sandhurst so special? One historical, as previous uh, speaker was saying, you know, the, the, the Commonwealth has been sending people here since 1947, um, and um, a lot of the chiefs of defence staff, chief of uh, general staff, a lot of the high-ranking officers in these countries have been through here. They realise the benefit of sending people here, so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a bit, bit, bit like a snowball, really. Christopher, tell us about some of the characters that have been through Sandhurst. Um, well, I, I seem to remember being at Sandhurst, and hearing, uh, uh, I think he was the sort of uh, uh, company sergeant major, telling a prince, sir, to get his uh, sort of feet in line. Uh, Jordan, uh, you know, the kings of Jordan, the princes of Jordan, as well as the guy that's uh, from the grammar school in the United Kingdom, all mixing together. Terribly important, this, you know. A lot of the guys that go on there from foreign countries, overseas countries, go on to be quite something in governments. And so there is a knock-on effect of it. And also, you find that you can actually work with people because you've been brought up in the same sort of culture. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we're talking about the Sierra Leone African Union force going into Somalia. Indeed. It was like going in, said the guy, with a British battalion. The, 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 the briefing was the same, the uniforms were the same, even the jargon was the same. It's got far more than just sort of simply good military training. It's, it's the future, quite often, with the relations with another country that are formed 
uh, in a place like Sandhurst. Colonel, if I, if I could put you on the spot, who's the most memorable person that you've seen at Sandhurst, apart from your visitor tomorrow, which I'll ask you about in a moment, of course? The most, well, memorable, it's hard. I mean, we have, for example, six heads of state, six current heads of state have been through Sandhurst. And um, recently, the Sultan of Brunei, son was here. He did very well. Um, so to say he's the most memorable... Perhaps, what do you do if someone like that actually turns out to be no good? Funnily enough, his previous son, the Sultan of Brunei, sent two sons here. The previous one was not interested. <laughs> he, he lasted three weeks. So he decided to go, did he? Yeah, because the overseas cadets have to do exactly the same training as the um, UK cadets. Their countries select them. So sometimes, sometimes we get the wrong people here, but very rarely. And more often than not, they do very well, and given all the vagaries of the climate, the food, etc. And do people like that come with bodyguards? No, absolutely not. No, they're treated just the same as everyone else, as were Princes Harry and William when they came here in 2005-06. And do they adapt well to that, being the same as everybody else? Or Ab Yes, because there are so many, and there's people from so many different... In a platoon of 30... You may have um, 20 graduates, you may have a couple of ex-British soldiers, two or three from overseas, and they have to gel to make sure they all get through. Tell me about, tell me about your special visitor tomorrow. Yes, Dao Aung San Suu Kyi, the um, Burmese opposition leader, she's, she arrived in, in UK on Tuesday, and one of the places she said she must visit, and we're very honoured with this, is, is the Royal Military Academy Centre. So she's actually coming here tomorrow and staying the whole day here. OK, um, well, look forward to hearing more about that and her visit. Thank you very much for your time today, Colonel Roy Parkinson. The UK also has a proven track record in training foreign troops in their own countries. Britain's International Military Assistance Training Team, or IMAT, trained soldiers in Sierra Leone for peacekeeping duties as part of the African Union mission in Somalia. Earlier on, I spoke to the former commander of IMAT, Colonel Jamie Martin. I asked him what the troops were like before they went through the British Army regime. Well, they were all trained soldiers, um, uh, but obviously of, of uh, fairly varying uh, capabilities. Some of them had done a previous deployment with the United Nations to Darfur in Sudan, um, and some had not, uh, obviously not had any other experience. Uh, there were one or two, there were a few who had um, fought uh, in the civil war in Sierra Leone, some of the more senior ones, um, but they were few and far between. So... Broadly, uh, a fairly inexperienced bunch, um, but they were very keen uh, and, and they you know, really wanted to get stuck in and, and do the best they could. Interesting that you say that they were fairly inexperienced. Is the training any different from that which you would expect of a British recruit or is there an acceptance that it can't be to the same level? There is absolutely an acceptance uh, that uh, they have different standards. Um, you know, we always made sure that we remembered that they were they were African soldiers, not British soldiers. And their their training and their experience levels, their equipment levels were all, um, uh, you know, less, lower than British levels. So what do you do, though, when you're actually recruiting people to make sure that you get uh, suitable recruits, that they're not people who, who might one day use their British military training uh, in an as an enemy? Um, well, we work um, not just with the military, but obviously with, with the government as well. Um, and we focus in, in the training. Uh, we obviously focus on human rights uh, issues, raising awareness of, of human rights. Um, and the intention is, is really 
uh, very much to build stability within a country. Um, so we're, we're bringing uh, all of these, these young men and women uh, into the military and enabling them to feel that they're part of the, the government, part of the organization, uh, that they are empowered, um, and that, uh, indeed, in Sierra Leone, they, the, the Sierra Leone Armed Forces moniker was a force for good, um, you know, serving the nation. So that was very much part of the emphasis, that to, to bring them into, uh, into the fold. Does the kind of training that you were involved in in Sierra Leone work anywhere, or does it have to be target-specific? I think the British military uh, have a huge amount of experience of of training uh, indigenous forces around the world. Um, Clearly, in recent years, uh, we've been doing it in Iraq, doing it in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm sure um, you know we're doing it elsewhere. So I think we're we're particularly good at it. I think British military personnel have great empathy with those that they're training and I think you know we do it pretty successfully. That was Colonel Jamie Martin, former commander of the International Military Assistance Training Team. This is BFBS SIDREP. The ordeal of an American merchant sailor at the hands of Somali pirates is the subject of the latest Tom Hanks film. We have two skiffs approaching with armed intruders. Potential piracy situation. Copy, Alabama. You should alert your crew and get your fire hoses ready. Uh, Yeah, is that it? Chances are it's just fishermen. Everything's going to be okay. Look at me. Sure. Look at me. Sure. I'm the captain now. Captain Phillips tells the true story, albeit with the Hollywood treatment of a U.S. merchant ship's crew held hostage in the Indian Ocean. The real-life drama happened four years ago when piracy off the Horn of Africa was rife. Pirates are still active. Early this week, Royal Fleet Auxiliary Ship Fort Victoria helped catch a group of Somali pirates suspected of attacking a supertanker and a fishing vessel, but the number of attacks has dramatically decreased. We're joined now by Rear Admiral Bob Tarrant, Operation Commander of the European Union Naval Force Somalia and Commander UK Maritime Forces. Hello to you. Um, why are there fewer pirate attacks at the moment? Is it the success of what you're doing or, or other reasons? Um, yeah, good afternoon. Yeah, the, the pirate attacks have come down a lot actually from uh, a sort of height of attacks where there were more than 30 ships held in um, 2011 and about 730 hostages held at that stage as well to one ship now with about 50 hostages. So there's been significant a success in stopping these attacks. And that's happened really for sort of four major reasons. Firstly, over this period of time, the naval forces, uh, and that's the EU NAVFOR working together with NATO and the combined maritime forces, uh, and the people we call the independent deployers, that's the sort of Chinese, Russians, Uh, Japanese and Koreans who are uh, operating in the Gulf of Aden are working very effectively together with great cooperation and coordination and that's put a lot of pressure on uh, pirate activities and and then you know if that's the sort of uh, stuff where we're deterring and disrupting them uh, industry uh, and we have an almost unique relationship with industry has uh, really worked hard to reduce its vulnerabilities by following the sort of best management practice and some of industry also take on private armed security teams. Has that made much difference, do you think? 
Yeah, I think private armed security teams have made a difference. We haven't seen an attack on uh, a ship with private armed security team that has been successful. Um, so we are seeing a, a, an effect on that. Um, but we're also seeing, of course, changes in Somalia itself. There's a new government under Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, and so there's a new feeling of, of sort of hope and optimism there. But there isn't a lot of stability in these remote communities where piracy comes from. So my, my sort of key message is that the business model of the pirates has been fractured, but it's not broken. These are really nasty criminal gangs with, with uh, networks uh, that spread into piracy, but also into smuggling, weapon smuggling, drug smuggling, people smuggling. Um, and actually, you know, the whole situation is reversible if we allow the conditions to come back. I don't suppose you've had a chance to see the film, have you? I have seen the film. You have? What do you think of it then? I thought it was a wonderful film. I, I, I thought the Accurate director, enough? Uh, the director, Paul Greengrass, and, and Tom Hanks did a, did a, did a fantastic job. Uh, but what it brought out for me was actually, you know, young men armed with AK-47 uh, machine guns and, uh, you know, rocket-propelled grenades present a really nasty uh, cocktail for any ship to, uh, to sort of deal with. And what your thrust is, this, these people who are sort of almost out of control against normal sailors who are not designed for this thing in an extraordinary situation and responding so, so well, which is actually how they, they did respond in, uh, in, Ala in, you know, in the Alabama incident itself. Do you know how many sailors are currently being held by hostage, uh, hostage by pirates? Uh, we think about, uh, about 50 uh, still left. And, and many of these have been held for over three years against their will, horrid conditions. You know, you know our, all our hearts go out to their, themselves and, and their families, of course, because, uh, uh, you know, they don't have control over life and death. That's held by their captors. And what kind of efforts are made to try and rescue these people? Well, there are quite a, a, a lot of... Uh, uh, efforts made, but it tends to go to w where the responsibility lies is for the, 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 the country from whom they, they, they emanate. They're the people who have got to try and help them. And the other responsibility for the ransom negotiations, because this is a criminal uh, activity, come from the owners of the vessel. And what the, the business model is that they take the ship and the, uh, the crew uh, back to an anchorage uh, off Somalia, and then they start a negotiation to leverage money. Uh, and we're not talking small amounts here. There's been a, a, an excess of $330 million in ransoms paid in the last four or five years. Uh, and we saw one ship, uh, which was a, uh, a crude oil supertanker last year, uh, who was ransomed successfully by the pirates for perhaps in excess of $13 million. So they're, they're making quite a lot of money. And I think, you know, the point I'd make to you is this is a serious crime. Uh, they've got a motive, which is, which is money, which hasn't gone away. Those opportunities to make money don't exist uh, in, uh, in Somalia as it currently is. And they have this, this sort of enormous opportunity as well, because there are 5,000 ships passing through the, uh, the Gulf of Aden each month. Most of them uh, coming towards Europe, either with, uh, you know, uh, petroleum or liquid natural gas, uh, or indeed uh, with a lot of other goods at the moment. And the other position is there's a really permissive environment. This mm. is, uh, we can fit the whole of Europe 
and some in the space that these people are operating in. All right. Rear Admiral Bob Tarrant, Operation Commander of EU NAVFOR, thank you for joining us today. Well, let's uh, go through our six-pack for this week and next, just before we go, Christopher. First of all, Spy Speak. I like the style, don't you? Spy Speak. So Ian uh, Loban and others from GCHQ, MI6, MI5 and a whole bunch of other spooks, they're going to be talking to the Commons uh, Intelligence and Security Committee on the 7th of November. They'll be telling all on things like terrorism, cyber uh, cyber security and regional instability. Shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. Egyptians, as from Monday, Egyptian police are going to get permission to shoot at somebody if they're suspicious. Russia without love. Russia without love. The Russians have dropped the piracy charges against the 30 Greenpeace activists and they're going to call them hooligans. They'll get seven years for that. Bahrain comes to town. Yeah, uh, the Bahrain defence minister into Brussels, into NATO, reminding us how important it is that we have in the Royal Navy to work with the Bahrainis in the Gulf. India and bombing. India and bombing, very, very, very difficult now because they're threatening the Pakistanis and they say, you've got a lot of border incursions and we're going to bomb you if you don't stop it. And who's bugging who? Who's bugging who? The Americans are being accused by all, the, um, almost all the European leaders of trying to get to the mobile telephone calls of presidents and prime ministers, etc. Uh, it's very important because we've been doing it for a long time but technology has taken this one the latest is Angela Merkel. Um, yeah. Why her? Well, uh, just imagine what would happen. Uh, so, someone like President Putin rings up Angela Merkel and says, I wonder if you can help me over the UN vote, the, uh, uh, the United, uh, United Nations vote on Iran. She says, well, let's discuss it, etc. The Americans listen to it. They're not just wanting the information. They're wanting the, what we would have called the body tones. They want to say how her voice is, what stresses she's under, etc. The past two or three years, modern telephones have allowed spies to actually get at things like personalities. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, if you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBSSITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music, music. for the British forces. This is...